You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, Be Set Free, a study of the book of Exodus. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Good morning. Go ahead and take your seats. We're glad you're here with us this morning. If you're, as you're taking your seats, we ask that you turn with me in your Bible to the book of Exodus. If you don't have a Bible with you, but you'd like to follow along, this would be a great time to have your Bible with you and follow along because we're going to be looking at a bigger section than we usually do. It'll be really good to follow along. So if you need a Bible, go ahead and just stick your hand in the air and we'll make sure that one of our ushers gets you a Bible so you can follow along. Also, for those of you who like to read the Bible on your phone, we recommend you use the YouVersion Bible app. And if you go in there to the live notes, You'll, uh, you'll see our notes. We'll have some stuff that's up here, but you'll be able to also interact. There's a, even some more stuff on the app that's not on the screen. So we're going to be in Exodus chapter 8 this morning. On Sunday mornings here at Whitefields, we've been studying through the book of Exodus in our series called Be Set Free. And the story of the Exodus is the story of how God set the Hebrew people free from slavery in Egypt. Uh, This story is a picture, it's an amazing picture of what God wants to do in our lives and how he wants to set us free from the things that hold us captive, that we might find freedom and salvation in him. Middle school class, by the way, is meeting down the stairs here. If uh, there's any other middle schoolers, you're welcome to join them. So last week we began one of the most uh, well-known parts of the book of Exodus, which is the plagues upon Egypt. And this week we're going to continue looking at that and we're going to look really at a, a slightly larger section of text than we usually do on a Sunday morning, and the reason for that is because when it comes to the plagues, it's really helpful for us to look at all of them together to really understand what they meant both for people at that time and for us today as well. So let's go ahead and begin by reading our text. We're going to begin by reading from Exodus chapter 9, starting in verse 13. The Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. In chapter 10 from verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, and a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones may also go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifice and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall remain behind. For we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he said I, he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, go, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. And on the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses says, It is as you say, I will not see your face again. This is God's word. Please pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who 
is a God of grace and a God of mercy. Lord, we, we know that you are a God of justice. Well, we thank you, Lord, that you are also a God of salvation. Thank you, Lord, for bringing that salvation into our lives, making it available to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for your love for us. And we pray that as we study this section, Lord, really we would see who you are and how much you love us, what you have done for us in Jesus. And we pray that, Lord, you'd enlighten the eyes of our hearts to understand your word. And Lord, as we look upon it, Lord, that you would be glorified in this place and in our hearts. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of today's message is The Peril of a Hard Heart. And here's what we're going to be looking at, just an outline for those of you who are into outlines. First, we're going to talk about who is the Lord that I should, ser- that I should obey Him. Secondly, we're going to talk about bargaining with God. And thirdly, we're going to talk about salvation through judgment. So let's begin by talking about this first section from the text, Who is the Lord that I should obey Him? Who is the Lord that I should obey Him? That was Pharaoh's response to Moses when Moses came to him with this message that Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, the Lord God, demanded that Pharaoh release the Hebrew people from slavery, let them go so that they could serve him and him alone. And it was this question, who is the Lord that I should obey him, which triggered the series of plagues which we see here in Exodus chapters 7 through 10. The plagues, all of them, each answer this question in a way. Who is the Lord and why should we obey him? It's a very important question, by the way, for for all of us to ask. In fact, there are very few questions that are more important than this question. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? In the text that we just read from Exodus chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, uh, this is what God says to Pharaoh. He says, "If Pharaoh, if I had wanted, if all that I wanted was just to wipe out the Egyptians, I would have done it. I could have killed you guys. And that would have been a very effective way of setting the people of Israel free from slavery. In other words, look, Pharaoh, the purpose of these plagues isn't just to set the Hebrews free. If all I wanted to do was set the Hebrews free, I would have just wiped you guys out and it would have saved us all the time and I would have just set them free. But there's something more that I'm doing with these plagues than just setting the Hebrews free. And here's what he says. He says, the ultimate purpose of the plagues is to show you who I am. In other words, the ultimate purpose of the plagues is salvation, not only salvation for the Hebrews, but also salvation for the Egyptians. So the question is, how were the plagues of Egypt meant to bring salvation to the Egyptians? The first answer is this, by showing the Egyptians that Yahweh is the unique Lord of all the earth. And the second way is to show them the natural consequences of disobeying God. So both for the Egyptians and for us today as well, these plagues answered a question. And the question is, who is the Lord? And they also answered the other question, why should we obey him? So let's look at those two questions and how the plagues answer them. First of all, who is the Lord? What do the plagues show us about that question? The plagues show us that Yahweh, the Lord God, is the unique Lord of all the earth. He is the true and living God, the one true and living God. You see, Pharaoh, when he asked the question, who is the Lord that I should obey him? He wasn't speaking as an atheist who didn't believe in the existence of God. He was speaking as a pluralist. In other words, a pluralist is somebody who says, look, you've got your beliefs and I've got my beliefs, but don't say that your beliefs are right and my beliefs are wrong. You can't say that your beliefs are right or anybody's beliefs are wrong. You just have your beliefs. I have my beliefs. They might be different, but we can't say that one's better than the other. Yours are good for you, mine are good for me. If what you believe works for you, great for you. But don't try to impose those beliefs on on me or anyone else. 
And, and if that sounds familiar to you, well, it should, because that is really the prevailing mindset in our society even today, just as it was in ancient Egypt. People often say things in our day like, you know, hey, if you want to be a Christian, good for you. Go for it. Do it all you want. But don't come around saying that other people need to believe it too. You, you can't say that what you believe is true and what other, people don't, what other people believe is not because that would be intolerant. And essentially that's what Pharaoh's saying here. He's saying, Moses, look, if you want to believe in your God, that's fine. But we Egyptians, we've got our own gods. And you can't tell me that I have to do what your God says. And the first message of the plagues is actually, Pharaoh, sorry, but that's not true. Uh, here's what we read in that passage in Exodus chapter 9, verse 14. God says, the purpose of the plagues was for this reason, so that the Egyptians would know that there is none like me in all the earth. See, the plagues were carefully designed and chosen uh, because each of them confronted the various gods, the various deities that the Egyptians believed in and worshipped and trusted in. And the purpose of the plagues was to show that these deities were in reality nothing, that they had no power, and that Yahweh, the Lord alone, was God over all the earth. For example, we, we began by looking at this last week. The Egyptians worshipped at least three deities associated with the Nile River, protectors of the Nile. In fact, they even worshipped the River Nile itself as a god. And so in the first plague, when God struck the Nile and turned it into blood, and it became polluted, it became undrinkable, everything in the river died, that was striking a blow at the confidence that the Egyptians had in those gods who supposedly either represented, were represented by the Nile or who protected the Nile. And as we go through each of these plagues, that's what we're going to see, how each of these plagues strikes at the heart of what the Egyptians worshipped, in, worshipped and trusted in. The purpose of them was to cause the people of Egypt to realize that they'd been trusting in counterfeit gods, that gods that really had no power at all, and that the Lord alone was God. So that they would stop trusting in those false gods and they would worship the Lord who alone has the power to save. Now even though this, uh, this happened, I mean, you've got to understand, from an Egyptian person's point of view, this must have been a very difficult and disillusioning experience to go through. That everything you believe in, everything that you trust in, is now being exposed as being false, as being nothing. I'm sure it was a very painful experience for these people to go through, a very disheartening and disillusioning experience. But think about this. Isn't it ultimately more loving and more merciful for God to show these people, to expose them to this reality that they've been trusting in the wrong things and that they need to put their trust in Him? Isn't that more merciful and more loving than it would have been for God to just say, you know what, I don't want to hurt their feelings. I don't want to make them go through this difficult experience of realizing that these things are fake so I'll just leave them be and you know God will sometimes do that in our lives as well if if you or if I have begun trusting in wrong things things which are, our trust is misguided looking to things other than him for things which only he can give whether that's identity or, or security or fulfillment or justification sometimes God will allow those things to fail us the things that we've been wrongly turning to and trusting in he will allow them to fail us so that we might again look to him and realize 
that it is only in him and through him that we can find those things that we desire in our heart of hearts. It's a difficult thing to go through, but ultimately, it's in our best interest. And we, we believe that's true here with the Egyptians as well. So last week, we looked at the first two plagues. But now, what I'd like to do is just go through each of these plagues, just make a few comments on them, and then we'll look at them all together as a whole. We pick up today in chapter 8, verse 16, where we see the third plague. This is a plague of gnats, or probably more accurately, as some translations put it, a plague of lice, which... Uh, Sounds absolutely terrible. In the previous two plagues, in the first two plagues, Pharaoh's magicians, you might remember from last week, they had been able to show up and they were able to recreate the uh, plague themselves, right? When the water turned to blood, they were able to find some fresh water and turn that into blood. When frogs appeared and just took over the land, they were able to make some more frogs. But this time, they, they're not able to do that. In the past, when, when they did that, that was what it seemed was emboldening Pharaoh in his determination to not obey the Lord. He said, okay, look, there's this miracle, this thing happened, but hey, my magicians, my occult you know, magicians are able to do the same thing, so maybe you know, they have the same power as your God. So it didn't really show supremacy. But this time is different. In, in chapter 8, verse 18, we actually read that the magicians of Pharaoh tried to replicate this miracle, which sounds terrible, right? Like everybody's got lice, but they're going to make some more lice. No thanks. But they, they tried, and this time they were unable to do so. And they say to Pharaoh in chapter 8, verse 19, they say, Pharaoh, look, man, surely this is the finger of God. Pharaoh, this is a power that is greater than us. You maybe need to listen to what Moses is saying, actually. But Pharaoh's heart is hard, and he will not listen. Which brings on the next plague. In uh, chapter 8, starting in verse 20, the fourth plague is a, a swarm of flies. And again, this swarm of flies, along with the lice and the flies together, what these struck at in the Egyptian worship system was the priesthood, the Egyptian priesthood. You see, the Egyptian priesthood was extremely careful about hygiene and ritualistic cleansing. And so, an infestation of lice, an infestation of flies touching everything and covering everything would have defiled the priest. It would have defiled their system of worship. In other words, it would have put a stop, at least temporarily, to the Egyptian worship system. They would not have been able to perform their religious duties. Furthermore, now starting in the fourth plague, from this point on, God starts to make a distinction between the Egyptians and the Hebrews. It says in chapter 8, verse 22, that no swarms of insects came on the land where the Hebrews lived. And so the purpose here is just to make it crystal clear, if there's any question, this is not just a natural occurrence that just happened to happen at this time. This is the hand of God sending a message to the Egyptian people in particular, specifically. These infestations of lice and gnats and flies, they would have put a stop to the Egyptian religious system, even if only temporarily. And so the message was clear. Here is what the Lord God wants. He wants to put a stop to the Egyptian religious system of worshiping these false gods. But still, Pharaoh hardened his heart and he refused to let the people go. So then we see in chapter 9, starting in verse 1, we see the fifth plague. This fifth plague is a disease upon the livestock. We read that this, some kind of anthrax-type disease comes upon, kills horses, donkeys, camels, herds, and flocks. And once again, a distinction is made between the livestock of the Egyptians and the livestock of the Hebrews. 
Now, I didn't uh, grow up on a farm. Maybe some of you did, but I think that for most of us who grew up in the city, you know, away from farms and agriculture and animals and stuff, I think it's hard for us to really understand the significance of livestock, especially in a society like that, in a completely agrarian society. You know, for these people, livestock was their entire livelihood, right? They didn't have bank accounts. They didn't have stock portfolios. They didn't have retirement 401ks, right? Livestock was their wealth. That's their investment. Livestock was their means of transportation. It was their means of plowing their fields so that they could have food from their fields. It was their means of having a source of food, right? So it was their meat that they would eat for food. Even nowadays, I did some uh, research online, right? The average price for a cow, you're looking at around $1,000. You want to buy a cow. So that's a lot of money. A horse is going to cost you anywhere from $1,000 to $4,000. So to lose these animals represents the loss of a huge amount of money, a huge amount of wealth, not to mention all the other things that livestock were used for. So for us, you know, who live in the city, this would be like your car broke down, the stock market crashed, and the bank folded, and you lost all your money, and the grocery store has no food, right? Like it would be complete devastation. This plague was directed against the Egyptian goddess Hathor, who was a, a cow-like goddess, had horns in the face of a cow, and this goddess was considered the protector of livestock. And so this was undercutting that. It was directed against this Egyptian deity who they trusted in to protect their livestock. Next we see the sixth plague starting in chapter 9 verse 8. And this is the plague of boils and open sores. They take this soot that's in the ground and they throw it in the air and it gets carried away by the wind. And God takes this and he turns it into boils, open sores and wounds on the skin of both humans and animals. And, and again, this time, the magicians, not only can they not um, replicate this, but of course, who would want to? But it says they can't even uh, appear before Pharaoh because they're just completely physically incapacitated because they're covered in boils. And this plague was most likely a rebuke against the Egyptian god Imhotep. Imhotep was the Egyptian god of medicine and health. Again, at this point, Pharaoh's magicians, now they actually start begging him. They say, come on, Pharaoh. Come on, you need to give in. Stop having such a hard heart to the Lord. Clearly, this is the hand of God. They beg him to give in and obey the Lord, but Pharaoh still refuses. And so that brings on the seventh plague, which is a plague of hail. And this starts in chapter 9, verse 13. Before this plague, it's interesting, God even sends a warning like he says, hey, heads up, Egyptians, this is what's going to happen. There's going to be a, a, a hailstorm like has never happened ever in history before in Egypt. And he says, here's your warning. Now go and take shelter. Take shelter for yourselves. Take shelter for your animals because this is going to be a hailstorm like nothing that's ever been seen before in Egypt. There's going to be lightning and, and, and anyone who's caught outside in it will probably die. And again, why would God give them a reminder if it wasn't just for this very reason that we already stated, that the purpose of the plagues was not to wipe the Egyptians out. It was to wake them up, to get their attention. If God wanted to wipe them out, he wouldn't have brought this. It says it also came at night. 
So you wouldn't bring a plague at night when everybody's already inside. You wouldn't give people a warning to go inside and protect their animals if your only goal was to wipe them out. So clearly that's not the goal. The goal is to wake them up, to get their attention. It's to erode their confidence in their so-called gods and get them to realize that the Lord alone is God. He alone has the power to save. This plague challenged the Egyptians' trust in many uh, deities which they associated with the sky and with weather. But in particular, probably Newt, who was the, the chief goddess of the sky. Again, Pharaoh refuses to repent. And so the eighth plague comes, a swarm of locusts. Now this is in chapter 10, starting in verse 1. This swarm of locusts comes. And whatever was left after the hail and all the other things that have happened, now the locusts come and they eat the rest of the crops. They just devour and the rest of the crops that are left. Now the Egyptians believed in a god named Set. And Set was believed to be the protector of crops. And so they believed that Set would take care of them. But once again, God shows that Set is in reality nothing. After this plague, Pharaoh momentarily feigned repentance. As he had actually done several times, you read through the text, you find that there was several occasions, uh, multiple occasions, where Pharaoh comes and he says, okay, okay, I relent, I I repent, I give in, and and I promise now I'm going to obey the Lord. Just please take this, this plague away. But as soon as the plagues end, as soon as the problem ends, his heart is hard again and he continues to resist God. And so another plague, this is the last one we're going to look at today. There's one more plague after this. We'll look at that next week because it really stands on its own. But the ninth plague found in chapter 10 verse 21 was a plague of darkness. It was as if the sun was blotted out. But this was more than just a normal darkness. This was a darkness that was felt. We also kind of get the impression that even candles and, and you know, man-made light, these things were gone. They, they, they weren't working. There was no light for three days. It was a tangible darkness, something that could be felt. There was something spiritual about the properties of this darkness, and it lasted for three days. Now, you might know, I remember I learned in school that one of the supreme gods of the Egyptians was the god Ra, who was the sun god. And this plague was a direct challenge to the god Ra and the Egyptians' faith in Ra. God is saying, I alone am Lord of all the earth. I alone am the god of light, not Ra as you have supposed. One plague remains, as I said, we'll look at it next week. But here's, here's the point, taking these first nine plagues all together. The first message of the plagues is to answer the question, who is the Lord? And the answer that the plagues give us is Who is the Lord? He is the unique Lord of all the earth. He alone is the one true and living God. The plagues were also to answer another question, which is the second question. Why should I obey him? Why should you obey God? And the way the plagues answer that question is actually very interesting. The the plagues answer the question of why we should obey God by showing us the natural consequences of disobeying God. Let me explain what I mean. Many scholars and commentators over the years have pointed out that there's a correlation between the plagues here in Exodus and the creation of the world, the story of the creation of the world in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Specifically, what they're saying is that what we see here in Exodus is an undoing of the creation order. It's an unraveling of the creation in, in a way. Each of the plagues we looked at has been a 
form of natural disaster. Now, we know that they were supernatural in origin, their timing and, and their scope was supernatural, but each of them represented a kind of natural disaster, right? In other words, what we see here really is nature out of control. We see natural forces breaking down, natural systems attacking each other, going crazy and destroying, nature destroying itself. What we see here is nature, in a sense, reverting to chaos. Nature reverting to chaos rather than order. Now, the story of the creating of the world in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 begins with darkness and chaos. And then God speaks into it. It says there in the, in the beginning of Genesis that the earth was without form and it was void. Darkness was on the face of the deep. And so God speaks into the darkness and he speaks into the chaos, and out of it he creates light and order in a world which is full of harmonious systems that work together wonderfully and beautifully. But what we see here in Exodus chapters 7 through 10 in these plagues is that the beauty of God's created order is unraveling to the point where not only is chaos ruling, but it even reverts in the end to darkness. And all of this happened because of what? What caused this to happen? Disobedience to God. Essentially what God is saying through the plagues to the Egyptians is this. This is what disobeying me leads to. It leads to chaos. It leads to disorder. It leads to disintegration. It leads to the unraveling of the way I've made things to be. It leads to chaos and disorder and destruction in your life and in the world at large. If you want to experience, though, if you want to experience beauty and harmony and the way that God created things to be, the goodness, then here's how. Obey Him. Obeying Him leads to light and life and order, but this is what disobeying Him leads to. It releases forces of darkness and chaos and disorder, not only in your life, but in the world. See, God created, this is the story the Bible tells. God created the world, and he looked at it, and he said that it was good. And everything in the world obeyed God. Every part of creation, every system he created, it obeyed God. It did what he said, with one exception. His highest beings chose to disobey him. And this is what that disobedience brought into the world and, and into our lives. It brought chaos and disorder, destruction and pain. In other words, to disobey God is to violate the very fabric of your being, the very nature of who you are as a created being, uh, created by God and part of God's natural order. On the other hand, to obey God is absolutely natural. To obey God is to function as God made you to be. You could put it this way. To be fully human, to realize, to reach your fullest God-given potential begins with obeying God. Here, here's a way that I like to put it. I like to, I think this helps, you know, really understand the concept. Think about it this way. Sin is not bad because it's forbidden. Sin is forbidden because it's bad. Let me, let me say it one more time. Sin is not bad because it's forbidden. Sin is forbidden because it's bad. And what that means is that God loves you. It means that God wants what is best for you in every way. And so if you take a look at the things that are wrong with this world, whether it's corruption or racism, hatred, exploitation, you go down the list, what you'll find is that all of these things boil down to one thing, and that is sin, which is essentially, 
essentially disobeying God. And so what is the message of the plagues regarding this question? Why should you obey him? Here's why. Because he is your creator. He made all things and he made you. And to obey him is to be who he made you to be. To live in light, but to disobey him is to bring forces of darkness, chaos, disorder, destruction, unraveling into your life and into the world. We're going to touch on that again in a second, but let's move on to our next point, which is bargaining with God. That's another thing we see here in this story. Throughout this section of the plagues, we see again and again, Pharaoh not only refuses to obey God and do what God tells him to do, but on several occasions, Pharaoh tries to bargain with God. He says things like, okay, how about this? I won't let the people go, but I will let you worship. You can do your worship of God here in Egypt. And how's that sound? Like, is that a deal? And God says, no. That's not the deal because I said, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. So no, we're not going to stay here. So, so Pharaoh says, okay, I get it. This is a negotiation, right? How about this? I'll give you guys a few days off. You go off in the wilderness, you do your thing, and you come back and we'll be good, right? How's that sound? Again, God says, no. You know, you still think it's a negotiation, but it's not. So Pharaoh comes back. He's got another offer. It's as if he slides the offer across the table and says, you know what? You're a hard bargainer, but I've got, I've got some, I'm going to let you have a little bit more this time. This time he says, okay, I'll let the men go, but the women and children and all the animals have to stay behind. And God says, no. No, no, no. This is not how it works. It's not a negotiation. This is a command, right? Either you obey it or you don't, but I'm not going to bargain with you. But of course, Pharaoh doesn't give up. He's in bargaining mode. And so after the plague of darkness, he tries one last time to bargain with God. And he says, okay, how about this? I'll let all the people go, but all the cattle and the livestock stay here. Sound good? And again, God says no. In fact, he says not a single hoof will be left behind. Pharaoh is trying to bargain with God. He's, he's treating God as if God is his equal rather than submitting to him as creator and Lord. And I think, don't we do that sometimes? Don't some of us do that? Have you ever found yourself trying to bargain with God when you know that what God desires from you is full surrender? He wants to be Lord in your life, but you're trying to come to some kind of compromise and say, okay, God, I'll give you this, but I'm going to hold on to this. I'll surrender this area of my life, but not this other area of my life. It's like, okay, God, I'll give you a little bit more this time than I gave you last time, but I'm not going to do full surrender. The only right response in light of who God is, if he alone is creator, if he alone is the unique Lord of all the earth, rather than bargaining with him as if he were your equal, rather than assuming that he exists to serve your interests or to help you accomplish your aspirations, the only right response in light of who God is is to say, I exist because of you and I exist for you. So what, Lord, is it that you would want me to do? When you come to him in that way, it gives your life a whole new agenda. Now what's interesting is this. In chapter 9, during the seventh plague, the plague of hail, we read that some of the Egyptians actually began to listen to what God was saying. They began to obey God. Like when Moses comes with this warning and says, hey, God says, put your animals and all your people inside. They start obeying him. They're like, okay, we're listening, God. We're doing what you're saying. But yet Pharaoh's heart was hard and he refused to obey God even though the people of Egypt began to actually obey what God was saying. One of the most intriguing parts of this story for many people is this issue of Pharaoh's hard heart. 
It's something that has caused a lot of debate and discussion and, and even consternation among some people who have read this passage over the years. Because over and over, from chapter 4 to chapter 10, over and over we read this phrase, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It also says, by the way, several times, that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So which one is it? That's really the question. Who is responsible for Pharaoh having a hard heart? Is it God or is it Pharaoh himself? Now several explanations have been given. I'll give you a few of them. One explanation that's been given is that God knew, because God knows everything, right? So God knew how Pharaoh would respond and he used Pharaoh's choice to harden his heart. God used Pharaoh's choice to harden his own heart. God used that to accomplish his purposes. Another explanation uh, that people give is this, that Pharaoh chose to harden his heart first, and then God essentially cemented that decision, basically said, okay, you're locked in. And then there are others, and I, I probably include myself in this group as well. There are others who say, look, the simplest, most accurate reading of the text as difficult as it may be to comprehend, as hard as it may be for some people to, to swallow this pill, is this, that, that it was God himself who hardened Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh would not obey him, which resulted in all these plagues upon the land, which was ultimately for the purpose of God revealing his glory to the Egyptians so that many of them might believe and be saved. Now the objection that some people have to that is that they say, how can it be that God would harden someone's heart so that they would not obey him? That doesn't seem fair. And what's interesting on that question of fairness is that Paul the Apostle actually addresses that very question in his letter to the Romans. Let me read to you from Romans chapter 9. Paul writes this, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? In other words, was God unfair by hardening Pharaoh's heart? And he says, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion upon whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That's actually a direct quote from Exodus chapter 9 verse 16, which we read at the beginning. So then, Paul concludes, he has mercy on whomever he will and he hardens whomever he will. Let me just say this, the definition of justice what is justice? Justice means getting what you deserve. The definition of mercy, on the other hand, mercy is not getting what you deserve. And the definition of grace is getting what you don't deserve. Okay, so this, again, justice is giving someone what they deserve. Mercy is not giving someone what they deserve. And grace is giving something, someone something which they do not deserve. And what that means is this. Grace and mercy by definition, are not fair, so to say. And since they're not natural, they're not, it's, it's not a given. It, it doesn't, it, we don't deserve them. Grace and mercy are special gifts that God gives because of his loving kindness towards us. The last thing that any of us should ever want is for God to give us what we deserve. Because if that was the case, we would be ruined. If God were to give us what we deserve, we would be lost. All we would get was, would be judgment. Because we've sinned and we've fallen short, the Bible says. We've fallen short of God. And the wages of sin, the Bible says, is death, which is judgment. 
But yet God, and this is the gospel. See, this is the good news of the gospel. Yet God, in spite of that, Paul says in Ephesians, because he is rich in mercy. Mercy meaning not giving us what we deserve. Because he is rich in mercy, because of his great love for us, he sent Jesus to die for us so that we might be saved. You see, mercy is something which is undeserved. Grace is something which is undeserved. It's, if if it, God does anything that's unfair, here's what he does that's not fair. He gives grace and he gives mercy towards us. The message of the gospel is that God gave Jesus. God gave Jesus what we deserve. He gave it to him on the cross so that he might give us what we could never earn or deserve. New life and eternal life and a relationship with him. And here's what's important for us to see. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh also hardened his own heart. And here's what that means. Let me put it this way for you. God's sovereignty and human responsibility are never divided. I'll say it again. God's sovereignty and human responsibility are never divided. In other words, you cannot say, if God's sovereign, then he does whatever he wants, then I have no responsibility and nothing I do matters and the choices I make don't even matter. So if I drive, you know, uh, 55 miles an hour through a school zone, well, you know, that's not really my fault because God's in charge of everything and my choice to do that didn't really matter because ultimately God was sovereign, so in a way, maybe God made me do that. No, not at all. That's not the case. God's sovereignty and human responsibility are never divided. And so, for example, let me give you an example of this. Judas, Jesus' disciple, who betrayed him. It says that Judas betrayed Jesus and he was punished for it. And yet, Judas' betrayal of Jesus was absolutely foreordained that it would happen. It was part of God's plan. Someone had to betray the Messiah. And yet, Judas chose to betray Jesus. And he's responsible for what he did. On the one hand, in other words, this is a mystery, right? Everything is going according to God's plan. But God was able to bear upon the situation to make sure that everything went according to his plan in such a way as not to violate the choice and the responsibility of the human agent. And here's what that means for you and me on a practical level. It means that you have a choice to make, and you will bear the responsibility for that choice. The choice is this. Will you embrace the Lord as God? Will you embrace him as your Lord, or will you harden your heart like Pharaoh did and refuse to do what God wants from you, what God wants you to do? Here's what we're told in the book of Hebrews on this topic of hardening our hearts. He says, the writer of the Hebrews says, Today, if you hear his voice calling you, do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. You see, it's a choice that you need to make today and every day. When you look at Pharaoh in this story, what you see also is a series of false repentance. Several times in the midst of one of the plagues, Pharaoh says to Moses, he says, Okay, okay. I I relent, I repent of what I was doing. I will let the people go. Just please make the plague stop. Pharaoh did that with the plague of the frogs. He did it again during the plague with the flies. He does it again with the plague of the hail. In fact, during the plague of the hail, Pharaoh goes as far as to say this. In chapter 9, verse 27 and 28, he says, This time I have sinned. He actually said, I have sinned. And he said, The Lord is in the right, and me and my people, we are in the wrong. So pray, Moses, and ask that God would make this plague stop. So Moses prays. God makes the plague stop. 
And, and Pharaoh's repentance then, once the problem goes away, Pharaoh's repentance also stops. It was kind of a, a false repentance. It wasn't true. It wasn't of the heart. It wasn't lasting. And he goes right back to his hard-hearted ways and resisting God. You know, interestingly, Pharaoh is one of eight people on the pages of the Bible who say these exact words, I have sinned. There are eight times that, that somebody says, eight people rather, who say those exact words, I have sinned. But here's what's interesting. Of those eight people, five of them, they, they said the words, but it wasn't true in their hearts. It wasn't true repentance in their hearts. They said the words outwardly, but they didn't sincerely repent and turn to the Lord. Five out of eight, more than half. You see, it's absolutely possible to say the words with your mouth, to do the, the right thing outwardly, and yet have this outward form, but not have true repentance, not have true religion of the heart. Pharaoh's supposed repentance was just his way of trying to get God to change his circumstances. But there was no change yet in his heart. And this is meant to be a warning to us. To harden your heart against God is a perilous thing. And if God is calling you today, do not harden your heart, but embrace him as Lord truly from the heart. And we'll end with this last point, which is salvation through judgment. You know, the purpose of the plagues, again, was to show the Egyptians that the Lord was the unique God of all the earth, that there is none like him. And so the purpose of the plagues was not only to judge, but, but maybe even greater than that, the purpose of the plagues was to save. Here in Exodus, we see that God is both a judge and a savior. That's really important. That's important to the key message of the entire book. God, who is God? He is both judge and savior. And this is what makes God unique, by the way. This is what makes Christianity unique, that God is judge and he is justifier. He is savior. Here in the ninth plague, here's what happens. Darkness falls upon the earth. Just as in before the creation of the world, darkness was on the face of the deep. This is a picture of what human sin and rebellion against God results in. It results in an unraveling of, of beauty and order and what is right. It, it results in chaos and and. The unraveling of created light and beauty and order. The result is sin and darkness and destruction. Centuries later, it happened again. We read in Matthew chapter 27. It says this, From the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice and he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the earth shook and the rocks split open. Here's what's happening. As Jesus hung upon the cross, darkness, judgment descended upon him. On the cross, all the plagues of God's judgment fell upon Jesus. On the cross, darkness, chaos, agony. He's cut off from God. He experiences destruction. Agony, not just physically, but spiritually. The rod of God's judgment came down upon Jesus. The plagues of God's judgment came down upon him. Darkness descended. And as a result, we do not experience those things. Those things do not come down upon us because he took them in our place. Jesus, the divine son, the judge of all the earth, he came to earth and he bore our judgment in our place so that we could be saved. This is the message of the gospel. And it's in this way that God can be both righteous judge and merciful Savior at the same time. It's not salvation or judgment, it's salvation through judgment. 
He took the judgment that we deserve so we could receive salvation. And this is what makes Christianity absolutely unique. This is what makes the God of the Bible absolutely unique. You know, every religion says, here are the standards, do them, or you will experience judgment. Here's what you need to do. If you do it, then good. If you don't, then you experience judgment. But the message of the gospel is this. The righteous judge of all the earth came down and he bore judgment for you so that he could save you. Now someone might say, well, if that's the case, then what incentive do we have to obey God? If God takes the judgment and saves us by grace, then what incentive is there to obey him? The answer is we have huge incentive to obey God. And we saw it here in the text because this is what happens. To disobey God is to betray the very fabric of your being. To disobey God only results in chaos and darkness, destruction and pain in your life. To harden your heart against God is a perilous thing. The very reason God gives you instruction is because he loves you. And to obey him is natural and it brings light and order and beauty into your life. When you see that, you will want nothing more than to obey him. So who is the Lord that we should obey him? He's your maker. He is Lord of all the earth. He is the judge who was judged so that you could be saved. Would you please stand with me and we'll pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for this message of the gospel. Lord, we thank you that you are not only Savior, Lord, you are judge, but thank you, Lord, that you are the judge who came and bore our judgment for us. And Lord, as we sing this last song, we sing it in worship to you. And I pray for anybody here today who would say, you know what, man, I gotta say, I, I may be a little bit like Pharaoh. Uh, I'm resisting God. I'm, I'm the guy who tries to barter with God and bargain with God and, and try to come to half measures. I'm the, I'm the guy who resists God and hardens my heart. And Lord, I don't want to be that person. I see how perilous that is. And Lord, I hear you calling my voice today and I don't want to harden my heart in rebellion. Lord, for those of us who would say, yes, that's me. Lord, I pray that you would give us soft hearts towards you and that today we would say yes to you in all the areas of our lives where you're calling us. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did for us. Now may we obey you that we might experience who you made us to be, and light and life and beauty. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, Be Set Free, a study of the book of Exodus. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.